And for the rest of us, we'll be in Acts, or not Acts, I'm in Acts in my personal devotions. Uh, We'll be in the book of Mark, uh, Mark 11. Uh, So I invite you to open up if you have um, a Bible with you. Mark 11, we're going to be in verses 22 through 25, and we're going to be looking at uh, a brief teaching from Jesus on the topic of prayer. And as you are turning uh, to Mark 11, I want to just bring us up to speed on where we are in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been working our way through this uh, book for, um, for the last year or so. So Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and they are in Jerusalem for the Passover. Last week, we looked at this passage in Mark 11 that's commonly referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Uh, It is this moment where Jesus drives out the money changers as well as those who are buying and selling in the temple. One of the things that we saw uh, is that actually based off the context, rather than referring to this as the cleansing of the temple, it's probably more appropriate to refer to it as Jesus' judgment on the temple. Because the people of Israel are like a fig tree that does not bear any fruit. In fact, Jesus ties his uh, story in the Gospel of Mark, or he ties this, this moment where he's cleansing the temple, he's judging the temple, with this, uh, this acted-out parable where he curses a fig tree. He, he casts judgment on this fig tree because this fruitless fig tree represents the temple in the first century. And it serves as a warning to each and every one of us about our own lives as well. Are we going through the motions of religion, or are we actually bearing fruit in our lives? And this morning's passage actually picks up right after that with this statement of amazement from the Apostle Peter. It says this, Mark 11, 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Here's Peter, and he's absolutely amazed at this display of power from Jesus here. Jesus has spoken, and this tree has withered away to its roots in 24 hours. And Jesus seizes this opportunity, just like he did earlier in the day, to teach his disciples about something very important. Here the topic is on prayer, but not just prayer, expectant prayer, effective prayer, the prayer of faith. You know, one of the things that I wrestled through this past week as I was working through this passage uh, is why does, why does Jesus, or why does he suddenly change topics here? Of course, Jesus is a, is a real person, and so just like we can change topics, it does make sense that Jesus could do that. But, but if you look at, at, at how Mark leads up to this moment, it's just this jarring transition. Up to this moment, Jesus has has given the scathing rebuke of the temple system because of the bankruptcy of Israel's worship. And then, after this moment of serious introspection for each and every one of us, Jesus switches to this discussion on faith and on forgiveness and on prayer. Why? I think there's a, a number of connections, but I just want to highlight two for us this morning. The first is found in verse 17. And he, Jesus, was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Here's Jesus, and he's pronouncing judgment on the temple, and now he gives us the reason why in verse 17. The temple was meant to be what? It was meant to be a a house of prayer for all nations. God had this plan, God had this intention for the temple that it would be a place where anyone could come and worship him, could could come and pray to him. 
And yet in the bankruptcy of the first century of Judaism, that was not the case. It was not allowed to be the case. And so Jesus seizes this opportunity to teach his disciples, okay, if the temple is no longer going to be this house of prayer, here is how you pray to me. You don't need a, pray, you don't need a temple to pray. You simply need faith. But I think the second, is, uh, second connection here is probably more relevant for us this morning. Recall, as we've been working our way through this uh, book in, in the Bible, that this is the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. Our story this morning takes place on a Tuesday, and Jesus is crucified on Friday. If you flip ahead a couple chapters in the Gospel of Mark, you see Mark 15, and you see just how agonizing, excruciating the pain of the cross was for Jesus. We see in Mark chapter 14 that it is on the forefront of his mind, that it is the, the, the focus of all of his prayers. Mark 14, 35 and 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why is it that Jesus teaches his disciples right in this moment about the importance of prayer and faith or confidence in God? This idea of faith and confidence in God's plan? Is it not because Jesus is living this out in this very moment? That Jesus finds himself putting his own teaching into practice in this very moment that he himself has spent uh, months crying out to God because he knows that the cross is right before him. And now he's just a couple days away and he is crying out to God in prayer and he is declaring his, his faith in God, his, his faith in God's promises and saying, God, I don't want to do this, but I am going to trust in you in the midst of what is in front of me. And that's how I want to start this morning. I think it would be one of the biggest mistakes we could make as a congregation. If we go through this passage, this passage about prayer, and we come away from it and we say, well, now I understand how to pray better. Now I understand what it means to pray. Now I understand what Jesus means when he talks about praying with faith be one of the worst things that could happen if that's where we stopped. In this discussion on prayer that we just created a, a more true, a, a better, a, a more accurate understanding of how to pray without actually praying. If this passage didn't lead to some sort of heart change, just this greater resolve for us to be a people who actually pray. And in the context of, of Mark chapter 11, we just got done looking at this passage where Jesus judges the temple because of this fruitless act of worship. One of the worst things that we can do this morning is leave here and, and be exactly like a, a fig tree without fruit. Without the fruit of prayer. This passage teaches us about prayer, yes, but it also should drive us to actually pray. And that's been something that God's really laid on my heart this week as I've been preparing this passage. 
Yes, we want to understand this passage accurately. We want to be faithful to God's word. But we also want to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so with that in mind, I want us to just turn our attention to this passage, just four short verses. I want to lay out the the focus of Jesus's uh, message here this morning from the very beginning. It's, it's really simple. The passage simply just teaches us this. Effective prayer trusts God to come through on his promises while living a life of forgiveness. Effective prayer trusts God to come through on his promises while also living a life of forgiveness. It's, just notice in this passage that we're, that we're talking about prayer, but more specifically, I, I call it effective prayer. This, of course, implies that there is such a thing as ineffective prayer. If you were to take a a poll of of both religious and and non-religious people, I would imagine that most of them would confess to at least praying every now and then. But the very act of praying does not make prayer effective. Effective prayer is expectant prayer expecting that that God is actually going to answer, that God is actually going to respond, that God is actually going to come through on what he says he is going to come through on. Effective prayer is expectant prayer. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our text this morning. It's really simple. It breaks apart into two clean sections. First, this discussion on trust in God or faith in God, and then second, on this life of forgiveness. So let's look at each of these in turn, but before we do that, let's pause and actually pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look at this passage on prayer, I feel within my soul my own need to be a better prayer. God, I ask for forgiveness for the times when I don't pray expectantly, I don't pray boldly, I don't pray with confidence that you will come through on your promises. And I ask for your forgiveness for the times where I have clung to wrongs and slights directed toward me rather than forgiving others as you have forgiven me. And God, as we approach this text this morning, I, I just say that we pause and we ask for your Spirit's help. In the next 30 or so minutes that we have in this text, we ask that you would, in a very real way, stoke the embers of our hearts to blaze in prayer to you. God, that we would be a people of, pray, uh, of prayer who, who pray earnestly and expectantly to our King just as Jesus did in the garden. Help us, Lord. It's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen. First key to effective prayer from Jesus in this passage is is this. Trust God to come through on his promises. Trust God to come through on his promises. Verses 22 through 24. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. In response to this incredible moment where Jesus curses this fig tree and then just a day later the, the tree is actually withered to its roots and this amazement from, from Peter and the disciples, Jesus takes this moment to teach his disciples about prayer, 
teaches disciples about faith. And I, I have to confess, this is a bit comical to me because Jesus' disciples have been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus heal people of every sort of disease and sickness. They've seen him multiply bread out of nothing. They've seen him speak and nature obeys. They've even seen him raise the dead. But not until this moment do they say, man, Jesus, how'd you do that? Where did that power come from? Matthew's parallel, Matthew chapter 21, tells us that that's actually the question that, that, that Jesus is responding to. How did you do that? And what is Jesus' answer? It's faith. Faith is, is quite the buzzword today, isn't it? We hear it all the time. Fans of sports teams have faith that their kicker is going to make the game-winning field goal or that the person who's at the free throw line will make those last two free throws. The doctor may give you a bad diagnosis, but you will overcome it because you have faith that things will turn out okay in the end. I am at the grocery store and I see someone do something nice to someone else, this random act of kindness, and now my faith in humanity has been restored. Everyone is talking about faith, so is Jesus just one of the crowd? Is Jesus not all that different from Oprah? Notice my statement a few moments ago doesn't give us the full picture. In response to this question of how did you do this, Jesus doesn't say just faith. He says faith in God. It's crucial for us to understand, and I'm going to overstate it to help prove this point. Your faith doesn't matter. The object of your faith makes all the difference in the world. I use an illustration that I have used with our junior high Sunday school class the last couple years. Um, after our service this morning, this is your first application of the sermon. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to do this. Um, after the service this morning, I want you to go find a chair, okay? You can use a chair out there. I want you to, to find a chair, and, and here's what I want you to do with this chair. I want you to, to take the chair and sit in it, all right? So, so sit in the chair, and, and I want you to ask a question Ask yourself a question while you were sitting in that chair. What is holding you up in that chair? Is it your confidence in the chair? Or is it the chair itself? Now, you may be deathly afraid of chairs. Perhaps you have a terrible track record of, of chairs. You know, no, no judgment here. Last night, I was rocking one of my children to bed in the middle of the dark, and I tried to sit down on the chair, and I completely missed it. So, uh, terrible track record with chairs. I, I get that. Maybe you've gotten splinters in them from the past. Maybe uh, you have childhood wounds of, of older siblings pulling the chair out from underneath you. Maybe you built a chair when you were in 4-H growing up, and it, and it was just terrible workmanship, broke to pieces, and, and now you're scarred by, by chairs. In, in that case... Your faith in chairs is infinitesimally small. But if you go sit in one of those chairs, does it matter? It doesn't matter. Your, your faith in chairs doesn't matter. Your trust in a chair doesn't make it more resilient. The more that you trust in it, the more dependable that chair is going to be. That's not how chairs work. Chairs either work or they don't, right? 
And the same thing is true of faith. When it comes to faith in God, what matters is not the quality of your faith. What matters not is the quantity of your faith, as though you must muster up a certain amount of faith in God, and then God is going to answer your prayers. No, your faith doesn't really matter. The object of your faith makes all the difference in the world. And that realization is an important foundation to understand what this text is not saying this morning. Some people will look at this passage and see it as a blank check. Anything that you want on your wish list, I want the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl tonight. Anything you want on your wish list, as long as you believe it and you do not doubt, then God's going to be forced to, to answer you. That's not what this passage is saying. That type of teaching is absolutely devastating to the church, and it preys on the vulnerable. This idea that if you want to be rich, all you got to do is believe that God is going to give it to you. This belief that if, if you want to succeed, then all you got to do is just trust God and he will bless you. You just got to have faith. Of course, the inverse is, is perhaps worse. If you or someone you love is sick and then dies, then it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. This messed up view that God is shackled to your ability to have faith or not. I say all that because it's false teaching and it needs to be guarded against. And some people run to this passage to prove their point. But at the same time, as I think of our congregation, I don't think that's the, the danger that we lean toward. If anything, if you guys are like me, then, then we have this, this tendency to, to fall into a different trap on the other side of the spectrum. We can look at a passage like this and, and we can be so concerned with what is this passage not saying that we lose sense of the expectancy that Jesus means for us to have. We can be so busy trying to protect Jesus from saying, okay, well, well that's not what what he really means when he says that, so, so don't actually ask for that because he's not going to, to respond that way just in case he doesn't answer our prayers. And we lose this sense of expectancy. We take a passage like this one and we add a thousand qualifications to it and then we're just left around, why is this even in the Bible? We look at a passage like this, if your, your initial reaction to this passage is not uh, this call to, to pray expectantly because God wants to answer our prayers. But instead is to say, okay, well, here are all the ways that this passage, or all the ways that this passage doesn't mean that. Then we can lose sight of what it means to pray with urgency and expectancy for God to come through. Of course, again, all of those things are true. Just a, a few chapters after this, Jesus prays in the garden. And what does he pray? He says, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup be removed from me. Does God remove the cup? No. He still goes to the cross. We can look at the story of Job. Job is a person who suffered greatly. God didn't make his life perfect. We can think of Paul in the, the New Testament. Paul suffered greatly from a lifelong affliction. And even though he prayed consistently and persistently for God to relieve him of this affliction, 
God didn't do it. But don't dull Jesus' words here. They should create a sense of expectancy in us. Look at verse 23. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, contrary to what seven-year-old Jordan believed, this is not a literal statement. It is a figure of speech. So growing up, I had a timber in my backyard, and uh, it was not uncommon for me to go into, those, uh, into the timber and go to these trees and shout, move, as though I was actually practicing my faith. I was, I was applying this passage. As you can imagine, it never actually, the trees never actually moved, except one time a squirrel jumped down, and this tree started to shake, and I got really confused and, and excited there for a second. No, that's not what this passage is referring to. It is a figure of speech, the same way that we refer to mountains today. A mountain can be a a large, impossible task for us to face. Jesus is using a a figure of speech uh, that is very common in Judaism in the first century. And, And notice also the context of where Jesus says this. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, a mountain, and off in the distance he can see the the Dead Sea. And Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone says to this mountain, the Mount of Olives, or the Temple Mount, some people say it's the Temple Mount, be cast into the sea, and the sea is off in the distance. Jesus is using language that is very common to his day to describe something wonderful. This confidence in who God is. That things that are humanly impossible for us are possible with God. Jesus' brother actually says the same thing in the, in the book of James. James chapter 1, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When it talks about having this faith in God, it really means do we trust in the goodness of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God? And and that also includes when God would say no. Do we trust uh, in who God is or do we doubt his nature? Do we doubt his power? And if we doubt him, then we should not expect a powerful response from him. And that's why I keep referring to this idea of expectant prayer. Expect God to come through. After all, isn't that what verse 24 says? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. To answer this question, I think it's helpful for us to understand what faith actually is. In other words, we've looked at the importance of the object of faith. That's what we discussed with, with the chair rather than the quality of our faith, the object of our faith is what matters. But what do we actually mean by faith? What does this word faith actually mean? We could go to many places in the Bible. One of the things that probably comes to your mind right away is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 contains these beautiful words about faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's really helpful language for us, isn't it? Faith is assurance and conviction. And in the context of Hebrews chapter 11, when it says the things not seen and the things that are hoped for, it is referring to this unshakable conviction 
Not just that God exists, but far more importantly, that God is going to do what he said he is going to do. Faith is this unshakable conviction that God is a God who is going to do exactly what he has promised. He's not just saying, believe that I exist even though you can't see me. He's not just saying, believe that I'm going to give you whatever you want. No, faith is believing that God is going to come through on his promises. The Bible contains many really wonderful pictures of faith, uh, people of great faith, but one of the most compelling ones is is Abraham. Abraham is a childless 75-year-old who God promises to make the father of many nations. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know many 75-year-olds who become first-time dads. And Abraham didn't actually have this promised child that God promised to him until he was 99. Strictly speaking, this is impossible. It's like the task of throwing the mountain into the sea. But did this impossibility cause Abraham to doubt God's promise? Consider Romans 4. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that last line. How do you describe Abraham's faith? He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham's faith is not rooted in his own ability to conjure up this belief, conjure up this confidence in God. It's solely based in his confidence in who God is. To quote the last part of verse 21 again, he's fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. In spite of the impossibility of what is before him, in spite of the impossibility of what God had promised, because Abraham trusts in the promises of God, the character of God, remember, in hope, he believed against hope, That's faith. This is faith. Not just this mystical energy, but simply in reaching the conclusion, you know what? God seems like the type of God who's going to keep his promises. And no matter what may come my way, no matter how impossible things may seem, that's good enough for me. That God seems like the type of God Worth trusting. Bring that back to the topic of prayer. What does Jesus mean when he calls his followers to believe and not doubt and to have faith in God according to this passage? What does Jesus mean when he says, believe and you will receive anything you ask? Well, it's not a blank check, as though you can ask God for anything you want, as though God is coerced into doing whatever you want. But it is this sense of expectancy. We should expect God to work. It's to cry out to God with this confidence that God is a God who knows best. It's to cry out to God with this unshakable trust that God is going to do what he has promised. 
It's this assurance that no matter how impossible your life may seem, God is worth trusting. And so as we come to this end of this first section on Jesus' teaching on prayer, here's the charge. Have faith in God. Trust God. Do you believe that God is who he says he is? Does that belief go beyond just this assertion on Sunday, and does it permeate your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday, your Friday? Do you believe that God is going to be one who comes through on his promises as revealed in his word, however distant they may seem, however far off they may be, at least to you right now? perhaps even more relevant to our text this morning, does that confidence that God is a promise-keeping God, that he's a God worth trusting, does that drive you to pray expectantly? Does that drive you to pray that God would come through on what he has promised in his word? Does it drive you to have this expectant heart that God is going to be and do exactly what he said he would? Effective and expectant prayer. Trust God to come through on his promises. So Jesus' first teaching on prayer should drive us to the strengthening of our faith through expectant prayer. Jesus' second teaching on prayer here tells us the type of life that this must be coupled with. Verse 25. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In short, a life of prayer must be started with a life of forgiveness. A life of prayer cannot exist without a life of forgiveness. That's the essence of this verse. Jesus isn't describing some special sort of prayer when he says standing in prayer, when you are standing in prayer. He's not referring to something special. That's just the common way of praying in the first century. You would stand with your arms open, and you would have your eyes, eyes open as well, and this is how you would pray. Today, we, stay, we kneel or we sit, and we have our eyes closed, our hands folded. Jesus is just referring to when you pray, make sure that you have also forgiven others. Now, why is it that Jesus seems to indicate here that, that God is going to withhold answers to our prayers if we refuse to forgive? I think it's because unforgiveness is this lack of belief in the gospel. Unforgiveness at its heart is unbelief. Unbelief in what God has promised us in the gospel. Jesus tells us a parable to this extent in the gospel of Matthew. The, question, the story starts with a question from, from Peter. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, right before this, Jesus had told his followers to forgive whoever sins against them. And Peter wants to know the limits of what this forgiveness should be. In the first century, there's some evidence that the rabbi said, uh, you should forgive someone up to three times, kind of like a, a three strikes and you're out kind of approach. And then you don't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter, by saying seven, he's going further. He's going beyond that. He's, he's on the right track. But then Jesus says, well, that's not good enough. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your Bibles may say 77, some of them might say 70 times 7. The, the main message is the same. 
he blows the doors off of Peter's categories of what is acceptable forgiveness. One pastor puts it this way, Jesus essentially shows Peter that counting is not forgiving. That's a really powerful way of saying it. Counting is not forgiving. True forgiveness is not delayed revenge but counting, by counting strikes against others. You are saying, I'm willing to delay revenge up to seven times. In this model, I forgive you carries good news and bad news with it. The good news, I'm not going to count you out yet. The bad news is, watch out, you only have five left, buddy. From here, Jesus tells a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave his debt. What an incredibly kind and gracious king this king is. What starts very ominous here, this idea of settling accounts brings up judgments. There's going to be some judgment here. Ends with this beautiful picture of forgiveness in terms that we can understand. The forgiveness of a monetary debt. This man is impossibly in debt. If you have a study Bible, it may share some estimations of what the, the 10,000 talents means in today's type of money. Some, somewhere between $2.5 billion and $6 billion is what people will say. But even that, I think, is missing the point. Uh, to, to help us understand this, the combined collected taxes for one year for the regions of Perea, Galilee, Batania, Trachonitis, Aronitis, Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. I know you don't have to repeat those. Don't worry about it. That equaled 900 talents. So the federal revenue for all of these different provinces is less than one-tenth of what this man owed. Modern-day terminology, $3.4 trillion is how much revenue the United States government collected last year. And this man owes 10 times as much as what the government collected. This is an impossible debt for this man to pay off. The point then isn't how much can this man or how, how much is this, but instead this impossibly high number, zillions of dollars to use a somewhat comical word. But then the man says, give me some time and I'll pay it off. That's ridiculous. The king isn't fooled. And in pity, he extends the offer of forgiveness to this man. How does the man respond? Let's keep reading. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What an awful contrast here between this benevolent king and this servant. What is the first thing that this man does after he has forgiven this impossible debt? Does he fall on his knees in thanksgiving? Does he vow to reform his ways? Does he begin to sing praises to this king who just basically saved his life? No, it tells us that he went out and he finds. It's a very active term. Maybe you could even say he hunts down this man who owed him some money. And, and don't get me wrong, 100 denarii was a significant amount of money. I think it was about 100 days worth of labor. This is a significant debt that this man is owed, but it's still nothing compared to what he had been forgiven. 
And he finds this fellow servant and he begins choking the life out of him. And the fellow servant makes the exact same request that this man made of the king. Give me time to pay these things off. And how does the man respond? He refuses. This stubborn refusal. He'd been forgiven an impossible sum and refused to extend that same mercy to someone else. One author puts this so perfectly. Uh, I'm just going to read this. It's a bit long, but, but I think it's important for us to, to understand what Jesus is saying here. It seems ludicrous that someone could forget about the forgiveness of such a great debt and then go out of his way to try to force someone else to pay up. But isn't that the heart of the problem? We lose sight of the fact that we had an incalculable debt and it was forgiven. It was absorbed on Jesus' body on the tree. Unforgiveness was not cheap. Jesus paid an infinite cost. Unforgiveness happens when someone else's sin becomes bigger than the cross. The problem is that we reverse reality. The debt others owe us seems bigger than the debt that we owe to God. This perspective can only be maintained if the magnitude of our forgiveness has become minimized and is almost out of sight or out of our minds. We keep alive the wrong done to us. We let the magnitude of our sin and the wonder of the gospel shrink down to almost nothing Unforgiveness happens when someone else's sin becomes bigger than the cross. At its core, that's what unforgiveness is. That's why Jesus says that a life of forgiveness is crucial to expectant prayer. You can't have faith, this trust, and this confidence that God is who he says he is and the promises that he has made to us in the gospel if at the exact same time you are disbelieving or you are deluded about the power of the gospel in your life. When you refuse to forgive someone, you are declaring to God, in essence, I don't believe your ability to take care of this wrong. I don't trust that you are able to handle this justly. At its core, that's what unforgiveness is. And Jesus says, let go of your unforgiveness. Let go of your thirst for vengeance. Do, not, do you not know that th- this sin is, is first aimed against me. Do you not trust that I am able to take care of this either on the cross or in the day of judgment? Do you think that you have to add to my perfect justice? Do you not believe that I can keep my promises? At its core, unforgiveness is a form of unbelief, and that's why it's impossible for us to be effective and expectant in prayer while also harboring this unforgiveness, which is really just harboring this desire for vengeance in our lives. A life of prayer must start with a life of forgiveness. Effective prayer trusts God to come through on his promises while also living this life of forgiveness. And as we began our time this morning, I I mentioned that one of the most important things for us to do is not just understand prayer a little better, but is also to have this resolve to go and pray. And so as we close, let's just consider briefly three ways that we can respond to this passage. First, it goes without saying, respond by praying. Respond by praying. The most fundamental reason that we should pray is because it is a matter of obedience. The Bible is filled with commands to pray. It doesn't say pray when you feel like it. No, it says pray without ceasing. Don't buy into the lie that exists in our culture that that says it is unbiblical It is not what God wants if you begin to pray when it's hard to motivate yourself to do it. 
Don't buy into that lie. On, on Friday night, Pastor Chris shared uh, with some of the men of our, our church uh, his experience in, in training for the Ironman tri- triathlon. And one of the things that he shared was a bit of his, his workout schedule. And uh, I, I brought this up to, to Chris beforehand because I didn't want to mention him in a sermon without having him at least be aware of it. But, but one of the things that, that I would guess is that there were occasionally times where he didn't really feel like going out to work, work out. He responded and said, that was pretty much every single time. And yet he did it anyway because he had a, 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 a higher goal, a higher purpose in mind. Now, why is it that we laud such discipline in physical exertion, doing something even when you don't feel like it, but we don't laud that same sort of attitude in the pursuit of even greater things? Things like prayer, to pray when we don't feel like it. And so before we go any further, the most basic response to this passage is simply to respond by praying. Pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't. Because you are pursuing something greater. Second, respond by cultivating faith. I would imagine most of us here would say that we have faith in God, but does that permeate every single facet of our lives? Do we live in such a way that, like Abraham, that we trust fully, we throw ourselves fully onto the promises of God? That faith, like a, a muscle that we, that we strengthen through use, grows stronger and stronger by continually reminding ourselves that God is a God worth trusting, that we can have confidence in him. We cultivate a faith by praying more and more and more for that faith. And not just praying, but praying expectantly. Expecting God to act. Expecting God to come through. Remember Romans 4.21. I've mentioned it a couple times this morning, but it's so important. Faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. So respond by prayer. Respond by cultivating faith. The third thing, respond by forgiving. Don't store up bitterness and vengeance in your heart. Don't hinder the effectiveness and the expectancy of your prayers by disbelieving the message of the gospel. And and just to let you know, forgiveness is not a one-time thing. It's not as though you can say, all right, I've forgiven that person and, and, and now it's gone. No, it is an everyday process. It's continually that we must forgive those who have wronged, on, wronged us. And this can be hard for certain people who have been very wronged in their lives. What does this forgiveness look like? First letter uh, to the church, First Peter. Um, the Apostle Peter gives us this answer. First Peter is written to a church that is suffering from increasing persecution by both the Jews and the Roman authorities. And in it, Peter focuses a great deal on how we are to be a people who are gracious, even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our hardship. And he uses this powerful language to remind us that that suffering in the church is okay because we're bound for a greater kingdom and to hold loosely to this one. And at the climax of his letter, he writes this, Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And while that verse, its primary focus isn't forgiveness per se, I think it gives us the the perfect language to understand what it means to truly forgive others. 
When you suffer, when you are wronged, you have two options. You can take vengeance in your own hands, or more often, honestly, we we store up or imagine vengeance in our own hearts. Or we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. In short, you can choose to believe the gospel or not. You can choose to believe that God is a faithful creator, that he is a faithful and just judge or not. You can choose to trust him when he says that all wrongs are going to be righted, either on the cross or in the day of judgment, or not. You can choose to say daily, yes, God is good enough to entrust my soul and all of its pains, all of its struggles, or not. You can choose to believe the gospel or not. And this isn't something that we do passively. It's something that we do actively. In short, we respond to the gospel by forgiving others. And just for a moment, think about what it would look like if we were a people who lived this way. If we were a people who lived lives of forgiveness because we truly, with every fiber of our being, believe the gospel, where God says he's going to take care of every wrong done toward us. Every sin is going to be taken care of, either on the cross through his son or in the day of judgment. That we would be a people who live lives with this confident trust, believing that God is exactly who he says he is and that he is a God that is worth trusting with every fiber of our being, even when it seems late, according to our timetable. That we would be a people who pray expectantly, praying that God would show up, that God would work in our lives. What would it be if we were people like that? change the world. It certainly changed our own lives, our families, our friends, our co-workers. It could change everything. To cling to the promises that we find in the Bible about who God is. And to say, you know, I, I, this doesn't make sense to me from time to time but I trust that you got it figured out, God. Effective prayer trusts God to come through on his promises while living a life of forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, as we close this time of talking about prayer, talking about faith and forgiveness. I'm just reminded of the the prayer that we see in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9, from a father. When he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's our prayer this morning. that you would help us to trust you more, to rest all of our confidence in you. And we would couple that confidence in who you are and what you've promised to do with a life that, that lives out a belief in the gospel through forgiving others.
God, I ask that you would help each and every one of us here this morning. Whether we've been walking with you for decades or we haven't yet decided to follow you. God, that you would help us to trust that you are God, that you are God worth trusting. Help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.